This morning we are talking about money. We're making our way through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, who is an incredibly wise individual, is also an incredibly wealthy individual. And he has undergone a project. And that project is to try to figure out what gives life meaning, what gives it purpose, what makes it worth living. And he's, he's tried a bunch of things. He's, he's tried uh, pleasure. He's tried just kind of living for the weekend or uh, living for success. And he has found that that has not proven uh, very successful. Um, he's tried living for his work and trying to make something meaningful come out of the things that he does from day to day and from week to week in his vocation. He has found that that ultimately isn't particularly uh, meaningful either. And so now he starts thinking about money. And we're going to think about money this morning as well. Now, he doesn't think about money as kind of the reason for living, but he, he kind of thinks about how money and wealth uh, works in our lives, the, the kind of... Uh, uh, influence it has over our lives, the kind of effect that it has on our lives. And, and you know, money is, is one, of those, uh, one of those very sensitive topics, right? It's one of those things that we don't tend to talk about in polite society all that much, other than, you know, complaining about how expensive things are, or how great a deal we got on something, or that kind of thing. We don't talk about stuff like, you know, what we make, that's not what you're supposed to talk about in polite society. When I, w- I was raised, not to tell people how much money I made. And so we don't talk about that. And we certainly, uh, we don't like talking about um, what to do with our money. Or we don't like being told what to do with our money. Money is a very private kind of personal thing for a lot of people. But it's an incredibly important thing too. Think about how much time you spend thinking about money. How much mental energy it takes up. How much, how much of your day sort of things related to money occupies your mind. It makes sense, obviously. Money is important. It's something that you need to live, Right? Um, but it can become extremely important. Oscar Wilde, who is always really good at giving uh, cool quotes uh, for sermons, even though he wasn't a Christian, he's awesome at giving good quotes that I can use in sermons. He said, uh, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing. When I got old, I discovered I was right. Money takes up such a a big part of our lives, right? It takes up so much of of what we're doing with our lives. We're out there making money. And if we're not out there making money, we're like in a school or something preparing ourselves to be able to be out there making money. We're figuring out what to do with our money, how to spend our money, how to save our money, how to invest our money, etc., etc., etc. Money takes up a huge amount of our mental energy. And that doesn't make us shallow, okay? Don't sit here and say, yeah, you know, the problem with the world is, is it cares too much about money. Well, money's important. And because it's so important, it's important that we think about money properly. Why is money so important? Well, money, money means power, okay? 
In our culture and in our society right now, we look to money to give us security. We look to give us satisfaction. We, it gives us freedom and opportunities, that kind of thing. It promises a great deal that if we have it, if we can obtain it, then we, uh, we will be able to experience these things like security and satisfaction and freedom and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so money is important to people who do have it. It's important to people who don't have it. What we need to do is figure out what's the best perspective, what's the, what's the best way to deal with this thing in our lives that looms so large called money. And that's what the teacher helps us through this morning. If you look at your bulletin, you can see that we're going to go through kind of four, four things that the teacher explains for us about money to help us get a good perspective on how to handle our money and deal with money. He talks about the purpose of money, the danger of money, the folly of money, and then the redemption of money. This is, this is a thoughtful, I think, a thoughtful approach to money. Now remember, we're just, we're again just doing a flyover. Uh, this is kind of an introductory overview of the topic. I'm not going to be able to hit everything. There may be questions that pop up in your mind as we're going through, and if you have those, feel free to write them down and ask them at the end. I may or may not be able to handle, handle your question and answer your question, but I'm willing to give it a shot. So just realize this is me like, you know, if, if the sermon stinks, I'm apologizing ahead of time, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm pointing out to you that, that there's a lot to say here, more than we can say in one, uh, in one message, but we're going to give it a shot anyway. All right, first of all, let's, let's see what the teacher has to say about the purpose of money. In verse 19, we're starting at the bottom of the passage rather than at the top, but that's okay. He says in verse 19, he says, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Now notice he talks about a gift of God and he's talking about the enjoyment of your wealth and your possessions, but he's not just talking about the enjoyment of the wealth and possessions. He's talking actually about the wealth itself. He says, read it closely, when God gives any man wealth and possessions. In other words, God gives us our wealth, our possessions as a gift. Because God, according to scripture anyway, as the creator of all things, is the owner of all things. All wealth, all possessions, all money, all resources in this world ultimately belongs to him. And he gives it to us as a gift. Now, let's just pause right there for a minute. Because a lot of people, I mean, Christians wouldn't say this out loud. This is, this is something that they would only think in their heads. But a non-Christian would say certainly out loud, wait a minute. God owns everything and gives me my money, whatever. My money is my money. And that's what our culture would certainly say. Your money is your money and you get to decide to do with it as you wish. Be, with, be, yeah, wish. Because it is your money. In our heads we say, look, you know, I worked hard for this money. I deserve what I have. My home, my assets, my, my RRSPs, my cash, whatever. That's mine because I am the one who has put in the hard work to get this. And, and actually, according to scripture, for you to take that perspective is naive at best and actually kind of arrogant at, work, at worst. And hear me out before you say, you, did you just call me arrogant? Just listen to me, okay? I'm calling myself arrogant, okay? 
Maybe you think, I work really hard for my money. Okay, you got a great work ethic. Where'd that great work ethic come from? Well, maybe you say, and probably what you say is, well, you know, I was taught well. I was raised to, to have a good work ethic. My parents taught me the importance of money and, and how to work hard for money and that kind of thing. And they helped, you know, when I was young, I got, I got my first job when I was eight years old, taking papers uh, on a paper route. And when I was 12 years old, I was working summers in the, in the fields and picking tomatoes or strawberries or whatever. And by the time I was 14, I had a full-time summer job and I had a part-time Saturday job and I worked and I, I have a strong work ethic and my family really prized that. Okay, great. Did you choose your family? You know, sometimes the successful look down on the unsuccessful and, and they say, you know, the problem is, is they just don't have a strong work ethic. And sometimes that's true. Maybe there is a problem with an unsuccessful person's work ethic. But where did that problem come from? Maybe they didn't have the advantages you had. Maybe they didn't grow up in a stable home environment as you did. I remember once hearing, I, it just blew me away because I have been an arrogant person on occasion, and looked down on those who don't have their act together, if I can put it that way. And I remember watching a news story about, um, about indigenous children on a reserve whose, whose, educational, uh, whose education was poor, and they were doing really poorly in school. And, uh, you know, you can say, well, you know, these kids, you know, they don't, they don't have to, they don't put serious effort into it, and they don't try their best, and they're, they're just sort of living off of uh, the avails of others, and this kind of thing. And this story unfolded to me as it's told the story of one kid who was trying really hard in school, but they were doing really poorly on tests, and here's why. Because they would work really hard studying for their tests, but the problem was, was that their father was an alcoholic, and on a night before a test, he did the same thing he did on very uh, regular occasions. Is He came home at, at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, and he was drunk as all get out, and he got his whole family up, and he started yelling and screaming and throwing things and hitting kids and stuff like that. And so this poor kid, at 15, 16, 17 years old, spent the hours from 1 a.m. to about 4 or 5 a.m., uh, protecting his little siblings from his alcoholic father and his mother from his alcoholic father, and then he'd have to go at 8 o'clock in the morning to go write this exam, and he would do poorly. It's not so simple, my successful friends, as I'm a hard worker, they're not a hard worker. Yeah, you're a hard worker, that's great, but, but don't forget the context in which your great work ethic was able to be cultivated and nourished and encouraged. And maybe you say, well, I have a really good education, you know, I, you know I've studied hard, I've worked really hard in school. Well, that's great too, but look, you live in a country where you have all kinds of educational opportunities. What if you were born in Haiti? Where the education system is such a, in shambles, most kids don't even get through grade four or grade five. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you to feel guilty about your success if you're a successful person. I am not trying to make you feel guilty. What I am trying to encourage you to do is to be careful and realize that the circumstances of your life have a much bigger role to play in your success, perhaps, than you are willing to give them. You know the old story of the self-made man? 
There's very, very, very few truly self-made people. In fact, if you dig deep enough, there are no self-made people because as the apostle, or sorry, as the teacher in Ecclesiastes teaches us, your wealth is a gift given to you by the owner of all things who still owns all things. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why am I wealthy and she's not? Or why is he wealthy and I'm not? I don't have an answer to that. But there are some implications to this idea, important implications, huge implications to the idea that God owns everything and your wealth is a gift. Let me just give you a few, okay? This is a logical flow. If you're not following this, I apologize because this is really important to understand why we're so screwed up when it comes to money. The first implication is this. Yes, God owns every, everything, but he does give wealth to you. And he actually does give it to you. What I mean by that is this. Your wealth is given to you in such a way as that you have been commissioned, in a sense, to use the wealth that you have been given. In other words, you, you behave like a trustee. You know what a trustee is? Trustee is someone who uh, kind of... Trustee is someone who is given power or control over resources that they administer for a specified purpose. Let me say that again. You have control or power over resources that you administer for a specified purpose on behalf of the actual owner. Okay? And according to Genesis chapter 2, God created the world and he created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he said, what I want you to do is I want you to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it or have dominion over it. In other words, what he said was, is I am putting you in charge of stuff. I'm putting you in charge of all of my stuff for a specific purpose to, to make things better, to cause them to flourish. We talked about that last week. And what that means is, is that you individually with the, the bit of wealth, God's wealth that he has given you, and some of you he's given substantial resources to, others he's given a lot less resources to, but the principle is the same. He's given it to you. You have something to do with those resources given to you. It's no accident that you are as wealthy as you are. Even though it's a gift, it's, it's not a surprise. You shouldn't... You shouldn't you should see it as, a, as a, a calling, as something that you're supposed to do something with. You have real power to make decisions with your wealth. Which means, by the way, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think a helpful one. You were created to own, to, to have ownership, to have possessions, okay? Some people sometimes think, you know, the problem with the world is, is that we are so worried about owning possessions, having material possessions, think what we should do is, is we should get rid of the concept of personal ownership, okay? This is actually what Buddhism uh, would, would teach because it says that, that desire is at the root of our, our problems in the world and if we would get rid of, uh, of ownership, personal ownership, we would be able to uh, quash that desire and we would be able to live far more uh, in harmony with one another. But the problem is, is that that does not actually that doesn't fit with human nature. Over the last 60, 70, 80 years, what we have discovered is, is that communism doesn't work. And why does communism not work? Because under a communist system, people have no sense that they are part, that, sorry, that, that there is part of the world that belongs to them, to care for. 
So when you are stripped of ownership, okay, what happens is, is you're actually stripped of human dignity. Adam got the Garden of Eden. Ancient people are given land. You are given, given resources like assets and cash. And they're actually given to you to be used to, be, to fulfill a certain purpose. You can see this very simply. I mean, I'm making something simple, complicated probably, which is my habit, sorry. Uh, ownership versus renting, Right? When you're renting something and the use of something versus whether you own something, you have a different attitude toward it. There's a pride of ownership that comes from, from actually owning something and saying that I am in charge. I am in charge of this asset. Now, this doesn't make capitalism perfect. I was just reading recently that uh, uh, even though uh, in the last 80 years, so in the past 80 years, we have gone from 40% of the world's population living in abject poverty to 10% of the world's population living in abject poverty. And that's a good stat, and we should be happy about that and excited about that. The flip side is that four out of every $5 generated is held by 1% of the world's population. So even though the bottom is being lifted up, the top is getting further and further and further and further away out of reach. And yet at the same time, capitalism uh, or communism is not the answer. We're supposed to... uh, Christianity is unique, okay? Because Christianity says, look, you don't own everything, but yet you act as an owner. There are things that you are supposed to do with your wealth. But here's the third implication. You're not supposed to do anything with your wealth just as you see fit. Because you are supposed to do with your wealth that which the owner has prescribed and God is the ultimate owner of the wealth. You hear people say that my money is my own and my job is to create my retirement egg or my nest egg or my job is to make sure I have enough uh, to pass on to the next generation so my kids can be successful, etc. But in reality, the purpose of your wealth is the same purpose of your work. We talked about that last week. The reason God created you to work is to provide a service to do something useful to meet the needs of the world to allow for human flourishing. And the same is true of your wealth. There's a place in Ephesians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul says this, He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Do you hear that? Do something useful. You produce a product or you do a service or you contribute to a a group, whatever. What for the purpose of having something to share with those in need? The question is, who are the people who who are those in need? It's the one who has less resources than you. And this doesn't mean, oh, I know, I get what you're saying. You're just, you're working your way into talking about giving money to charity or giving money to the church. That's how all you preachers operate, right? Somehow, everything has to do with giving your money to the church. That is not what I'm talking about. You, you have a very simplistic understanding of what God means when he says that you are supposed to have something to offer those in need. Let me give you a very simple illustration. If you're a business owner and you grow that business, and you cultivate that business, and you do your best to invest in, in that business to make it grow and make it better, you now have an opportunity to provide for those in need. Who? The people who need a job. 
If you're not making opportunity with your investment for them to have a place to work, then they remain in need. But you can meet a need by giving them work. So it's not simply about having money to give to, to charity. Anyone who needs your product, if you produce it, is someone in need of that. I, I, I can't go on, on this too long, but it's very fascinating how we are able to do way more together than we are to do on our own. We are able to do on our own. Imagine if you had to make all your own furniture for your home. Like, just think about that. You're sitting on couches, you're sitting on chairs, you've got tables, you've got beds, you've got mattresses. What if you had to make all of that stuff? yourself. Some of you are pretty good at, you know, building things, and you think, well, you know, I'm pretty good at it, but what the cost? The cost of it. But because you use your resources in one way, and someone else uses their resources another way, and through the, through the exchange of cash, we are able to, to uh, benefit one another, we can do way more than we could all do on our own. And so, imagine a world where we were following God's design for the use of our money. Imagine a world where we said, I have to produce, I am called to produce something that is useful so that I can help others in need. Wouldn't be much of a, a need in the world, would there be? But that's not how things are, right? That's not how things are. Why isn't that how things are? Well, it's because of what the teacher calls the danger of money. Now, obviously, the first point should help show you what what the danger of money is. Danger is powerful, right? It op- or sorry, money is powerful. It provides resources, it opens doors, it offers security, right? It, 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 cre- it creates opportunity. And so money, because of that, is very seductive. The danger of money lies in its seduction. Look at verse 10. He says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. This is the Old Testament version of what the Apostle Paul says when he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And let's be very careful here. It's not money itself that is the problem. It's the love of money. It's it's our desire for money. When When it goes out of whack, when it goes out of control, that's when it becomes a problem. And the reason is, is because we can be seduced by its power and, we, and we, we begin to see money as the answer to our problems, as the savior of our situation. I don't know how many times I've sat with people who are unhappy with their lot in life and when you basically boil it down to, when you boil down to it, one of their big issues is, is that they don't have as much, of, as much money or as, as many assets as money can buy as the next person. Money seduces us because it has power. How does it, how does it do that? Well, for example, there's a number of studies, and, and this isn't absolute, but it's uncanny how many studies have demonstrated that, in fact, poor people are generally more generous than wealthy people. And you ask yourself, like, why is that? How can that be? And it's very simple. It's because... Wealthy people understand the power of money or have been seduced by the power of money in a way that poor people can't be. And I had a, a, a wise old pastor explain this to me once with this illustration. I hope it's useful for you. He, said, he says, take what people call the tithe sometimes. So the tithe is this Old Testament idea that you're supposed to take 10% of your wealth and give it to uh, God, give it back to God to be used for 
advancing his kingdom. So if you make $10, you give a dollar back to the king if you make that. But if you think about it, think, if you have a dollar, 10% of a dollar is 10 cents. Well, what's the big deal giving 10 cents when you have a dollar, right? What can you do with 10 cents anyway? But if you have $10 and you give a dollar away, you're like, oh, you know, maybe I could have bought a pop or something at the convenience store. I honestly, I don't know if you could. Probably you can't anymore. I just dated myself. Yeah, buddy, right? 1990, you could buy a pop for a dollar in the convenience store. Anyhow, and let's say you have $100,000 though. Or no, let's say it'll go to $10,000. You got $10,000. You give $1,000 away. That's a pretty nice television, right, that you could have bought. Or $100,000, and now you give $10,000 away. That's like a year's worth of university tuition. But if you have a million dollars, and you're going to give $100,000 away, what could you do with $100,000? You could put a very solid down payment on a very nice house with that. You see the power of money? You see how, how the old saying, it takes money to make money, is, is very often true? See, the more money you have, the more you can do with your money. And so as your wealth grows, the seduction of that wealth begins to grow in your life as well. That's why Jesus said it is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. It's not the riches that are the problem, it's the seductive power of money. So that J.D. Rockefeller, when he was at one time the richest person in the world, he was asked, which was the the most enjoyable million you made? And he said, the next one. So we're seduced by the power of money. It's not money's fault. It's our fault in being seduced by it. But that's that's not all it is. Look at verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? As, this is how our culture works. As wealth increases, so does influence. When you have a lot of money and people know it, people want to be with you. They want to get your opinion on things. They think that because you're a successful person, you must be a very wise person as well, which is not necessarily the case, but that's what they think. And so they want your opinion on things. They want to be around you. They want to invite you to serve in leadership and maybe at church or on the board of some uh, 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 company or something like that. They want to have your input because of your wealth. Or they just want to be around you because they're hoping to get a bit of that wealth for themselves. You know, if you have money, you get more phone calls from uh, people who are looking for donations as well. And so, there's a lot to worry about when you have a lot of money. That's why the apostle, or sorry, why the teacher says in verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. He's just a laborer. He doesn't doesn't have the responsibilities of the wealthy. But, he says, the abundance of a rich man permits permits him no sleep. There's a lot to worry about when you have a lot of wealth. Oftentimes, when you have a lot of wealth, you have a lot of stuff. And you gotta worry about your stuff, too. I mean, it's always great to have stuff like cottages and boats and second homes and airplanes and stuff like that, but you've got to maintain. And again, this is not, if you're, if you're feeling guilty about having a cottage, I don't know here if anybody here has a cottage in Perry Sound, but if you're feeling guilty about perks, when you have wealth, you have responsibilities. That's just how it is. And so it can be a trap in our lives for those with money and for those without money. Let's go after the people without money for a little bit. You ever notice how touchy you are? when you're around people with money? 
So you're sitting, here's the picture. I'll give it to you very quickly. I've got to talk fast. You're sitting down to dinner or a coffee or having a beer with a bunch of friends and it's a disparate group of friends. One guy has quite a bit of money and the other, you know, another guy doesn't have very much money and the other people are in between. And you're all just talking and stuff like that. And the one guy does mention, oh man, this weekend I got to go up to, to, uh, to my cottage because I got to mow the lawn. And he kind of says it in a semi-complaining way. And you, who would never in a million years be able to afford a cottage, you roll your eyes in your head. Oh, what a problem to have. And you scorn them because of their wealth. In a strange way, even though you're comparing yourself to them and it bugs you that you're not them, you look down on them and you think that they're either shallow or, or whatever. You, you, almost, you almost try to make yourself feel more righteous because of your lack of resources. Come on, you know you do it. Because the problem of money is not just the problem of the rich, it's the problem of, of the, the poor as well. So, money is dangerous because it is so powerful. And it can become a trap. Perhaps the last reason, though, is because it's so subtle. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking about money. <laughs> And he says this, he says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And what is so remarkable about that comment is that Jesus says, Watch out, be on your guard about greed. Jesus talks about sex a lot and the dangers of sex and lust and he talks about the dangers of money even more and never once when he's talking about sex and lust does he say you need to watch out and be on your guard for greed. But he does say that about, or sorry, watch out and be on your guard for lust. He doesn't say, watch out or lust will get you. But he does say, watch out or greed will get you. Why? Well, I, I can tell you, as a pastor, I've had people come up to me and they say, I struggle with lust. Or I've committed adultery. And it's very obvious to them that they've got a problem in that area. Not once has anybody ever come up to me and said, Pastor, I think I struggle with greed. I think I have a problem with the love of money. Or have someone come up to me and say, you know, I resent people who are successful. This is a real issue for me. I'm struggling with contentment with what I have. I've never had that because it's a subtle trap. You don't know you're greedy. I don't know I'm greedy unless it's pointed out to us like this. But it's all folly, you know? It's dangerous and it's, it's all folly. The teacher mentions the folly of Money, when he says in verse 13 and 14, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. He's talking about how we put our hope in our money, but it's foolish because money is so precarious. Something that we all know, but we never live like we know. It's here today, and it could be gone tomorrow. How many people lost their portfolios in, in, in a Instant in the crash of the 2008 stock market crash. Like, we're talking about hundreds. People had, literally, they had $800,000 one day in the bank, and they had $200,000 the next day in the bank. And you think, well, I don't even have that. But think of the gap. Just wiped out, just gone. In the blink of an eye. 
And people say, well, yes, we understand that, and, and uh, I, uh, that may be true, but you've also heard of the old story. How many times have you heard this story? Someone worked very, very hard all their lives. They were very careful with their money. They, they invested it well. They worked hard. They were diligent with it, all so that when they hit 65 or 68 or whatever age it is now, they're going to retire and they're going to enjoy life, and they finally retire, and two weeks later, they're stricken with cancer. Or they're diagnosed with Parkinson's. Or a stroke or a heart attack or whatever takes them out. And they never got to enjoy the fruit of their labor. See, you may never get to enjoy that fortune that you're amassing, friends. Verse 15 says what everybody knows. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. You can't take it with you. That's what he's saying, and we all know that. And yet we worry about money a lot. God gives you this great tool to help you and others thrive and flourish, and it, and it becomes this idol that drives us and makes life less a joy and far more a burden. And he says that this is a grievous evil. So can we be freed from this? Can we escape from this cycle of enslavement to our money that we put all this hope in but all it ever does is cause us sleepless nights? That's our last point, the redemption of money. You know, in verses 15 and 16, the point of the teacher is, is that at the end of the day, all the things he said about money, they boil down to this. Verse 16, as a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. He's lamenting the fact, saying it's a grievous evil that you can't take it with you. It's, it's utterly unbearable at the end of the day, to realize that all this toil could be taken away from you, taken away from your ancestors. It means nothing at the end because death, death, death looms for all of us and it takes away, it sucks out the joy. If you live in the light of it, it sucks out the joy of even the work of your hands. Now here's the question, what if what if that was not necessarily true? Remember we said at the beginning that the teacher is the, is the one who asks the questions. He pushes us to understand the logic of life lived under the sun. And we need to go somewhere for the answers that the teacher is posing because he doesn't necessarily have all the answers. But what if you could take your wealth with you? What if, what if you could take the investments that you make in this world into the next world? What would that do to, the, to, the, to the, the perspective you have on the work that you're doing in the here and now? Well, Jesus Christ, centuries later, in John chapter 12, was speaking to his disciples, and he said something absolutely incredible to them. He said this, beginning at verse 32 of Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, verse 32 through 34. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's a way you can take it with you, you see. He says, if you use your wealth the way it was meant to be used, the way God designed it for, for, to be useful for others, you can take it with you. He, he, here's the picture he paints for you. You've got to understand what he's getting at. He's saying, if you would take your wealth and your money and you would invest it in people, in helping people get out of scrapes, in helping people get from here to here and improve their lives, in helping people understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, in helping people know that there is an eternity on the other side of the grave and every single one of us is going to spend an eternity in one place or another and that that choice has been given us through the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that if you would help people get to that glorious destination that Jesus when he died on that cross opened a way for us if you would invest your time and energy in that and I'm not just talking about giving money to the church or giving money to charity I'm talking about you investing your resources in such a way that you can be a blessing to others so that they might know that Jesus is the son of God who lived for them and died for them then then you can experience an eternal listen to it a never ending endless always and forever return on your investment can you imagine that you are walking down the, the streets of downtown Dundas someday a billion years from now when the sun has, has burnt up and you're in a new place, the new creation as the Bible describes it, and you're walking in downtown Dundas and someone walks up to you and says, hey, you! And you go, huh, hmm? me, yeah? Yeah, you, I want to talk to you. And don't worry, you're in heaven, so it's not scary if someone does that. You say, yeah, what's up? And they say, you know what, I'm here, I want to thank you. And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, you were part of that church that... Uh, that ran that grief share thing I went to. And at that grief share thing, I learned how to deal with being mad as hell about my loss. I want you to know I hated God and wanted nothing to do with him, but I came to that grief share thing. And I came to understand that that, 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 that doesn't have to be the end of the story for me or for my loved ones, and, and I got tremendous comfort from it. I, be, I became a Christian through that. Or they say, you know, I, you, you gave me a job. Remember you gave me that job? It was just a summer job. I just needed something to make money because I was going off to school. But you gave me that job. You were such a good boss and you treated me right. And I was like, what's with this dude? Because I hear that bosses are jerks and they're always trying to suck every cent they can out of their employees. But you weren't like that. You like took an interest in me and then I discovered that you were a Christian. And it made me curious. Or remember, you know, I, had, I was in that problem and you were just a neighbor and you, you know, you paid that debt for me. You didn't even ask me what it was for. You just said, I can help out, so I will. And I was just so amazed by that. And now every day, for the next billion years, on your way to coffee with your buddies, you pass this person and you smile and you wave at each other. How's that for an investment? 
Now, maybe you say, oh, that sounds pretty cool. What a way to enjoy my wealth. But I got to say, man, that sounds good. But really, is that really what it's like? Look at your Savior. This is the last thing. Look at your Savior. It says that who for the joy set before him, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He looked down through the corridor of history, and you know what he saw? He saw you, and 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 he saw you. And he saw you dead in your sin. And he said, I am unsatisfied with an eternity without them. There is a joy that I will miss if I experience an eternity without them. And so he became poor. And not just poor, he became utterly destitute for you. So that one day when you stand in glory before him and you say, Lord, I'm here, he'll say, it was worth it. It was worth giving up everything to have you here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's what he accomplished. That's the pattern he sets for us. And when that sinks into your heart, this won't sound so crazy to you. Everybody puts their money into what they love. If you love hockey and registration is 250 bucks, you say, hey, it's the price of what I love. 